Amen and amen. Um, James, choir, thank you, thank you for inviting us to lift up not only our voices but our spirits in worship. Amen. And thank you to our children and our youth for leading us in worship not just today but every day, every week. Thank you. Well, friends, it is good to be in worship together as the whole people of God. And yet, if these last few weeks have taught us anything, it is that our worship is not limited to what we do between these four walls within this one hour on Sunday. And our ministry isn't limited to church programs and certainly not to our church staff. No, as we've witnessed these last several weeks, worship is just as capable of happening on a crowded bark car as a silent cathedral, during Friday 8 a.m. school drop-off as 11 o'clock Sunday morning. And ministry is practiced just as much by teachers and attorneys, widows and visitors, as by those of us in robes and stoles. That is, if we have eyes to see that. Our sermon series has been an exercise in perception. Can we see our everyday rhythms and as liturgies of worship? Can we see ourselves as ministers in the ordinary things of life? It feels a bit like looking at one of those optical illusions, you know the ones that I'm talking about. You look at an image and you see a duck, clearly a duck, until all of a sudden, your perception changes and you see everything differently. Suddenly, it is a rabbit. It was there all along, the holy in the mundane, the sacred in the seemingly insignificant, the ministry of the ordinary. I'll confess that I'm not very good at optical illusions in life or in faith. Often I need others to point out what is hidden in plain sight for me. And one of my recent helps has been this book, Every Moment Holy by Douglas McElvey. It's filled with beautiful prayers for everyday people, liturgies for the ordinary stuff of life, for a morning cup of coffee and for paying bills, for finishing a beloved book and for planting flowers. I've found myself turning time and time again to one particular liturgy, a liturgy for changing diapers. <laughs> it goes like this. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that like bright and ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I am not just changing another diaper. By love and service, I am tending to a budding heart that rooted in such grace-filled devotion might one day more be readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. Wow. 
It takes a pretty skilled theologian and a poet to take the drudgery of diapering and revision it as a sacred task of no less importance than the very forming of a life that knows and shares God's grace. All that with each and every diaper. For those of us who have young people in our life that we love, that we care for, chances are most days we don't see the everyday tasks of caregiving as ministry. Changing diapers and packing lunches, chauffeuring kids to practice, taking, talking through the most recent friend drama hardly seem to rise to the level of ministry and certainly not the stuff of pivotal spiritual formation. And yet, what all the books would tell us is otherwise, and not just the theological or the poetic ones. The National Study for Youth and Religion is the most ambitious study of the religious lives of American teenagers to date. Conducted over the course of more than 15 years, researchers interviewed more than 3,300 American youth between the ages of 13 and 17 and revisited over 2,500 of these young people years later to understand how their religious lives were changing as they entered into emerging adulthood. And what did they find was the single most powerful influence on the religious lives of contemporary teens? Any guesses? Nope, not their peers, not media, not their youth group leaders or their pastors. Myriad after myriad of studies show that beyond a doubt, the primary determinant of teens' faith formation is, maybe you guessed it, their parents. Parents of American teenagers play the leading role in shaping the character of their religious lives even well after they leave home, often for the rest of their lives. Now, lest those of us who have younger children find ourselves sighing with relief, congratulating ourselves that we have a bit more time to figure this all out, research Recent research shows that one of the most critical windows for faith formation may be between birth and age three. Bottom line, the primary ministry of passing along faith and practice to our children belongs to us as parents across the ages. But this isn't just an issue for those parenting or those employed by the church for the ministry of Christian formation. This is relevant to any of us who have youth in our lives that we love and who we want to love God. Those of us who are grandparents and relatives, caregivers and mentors to youth, really all of us in the Christian church who at every baptism that we hold right here make a vow to promise to partner in the faith formation of our children. So how do we do it? How do we as parents and committed caregivers and committed congregants alike arise up the young people in our lives in faith? Those in this room that we've seen and those especially not. As it turns out, the answer may be more timeless and familiar than we might anticipate. As we turn in scripture to the story of one youth named Samuel and the parents and priests who sought to raise him up in the faith, 
I invite you to pray with me. Living God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with deep hope and joy what you have to say to all of us today. Speak, O Lord, we pray, for your servants are listening. Amen. Family of God, our scripture readings today come from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Listen to God's word for us. The man Elkanah and his household went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah, his wife, did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and remain there forever. I will offer him as a Nazarite for all time. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until we have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had done so, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. There they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and the high priest. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am and ran to Eli, and he said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, go lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, go lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the most ordinary language, Samuel's story goes like this. Raised by devout parents, Samuel was prayed for and prayed over. 
From his earliest days, he grew up immersed in the simple rhythms of his parents' faith, including their regular visit to the sanctuary, where they would worship the Lord and offer back to God some of what God had blessed them with. When the time was right, his mother brought him to the priest to be dedicated as God's own. And just like that, Samuel found in that sanctuary a new home and a new spiritual mentor. He started ministering there even as a child, using his gifts in service to God and the larger faith community. Even though Samuel was still getting to know God and God's voice, that didn't stop the Almighty. God spoke to Samuel. At first, Samuel thought it was just the voice of his trusted advisor. But with time, his wise mentor helped Samuel listen for and respond to God's voice because God had things to say to and through this young prophet. Despite the distance of a few millennia and some historical and cultural details, Samuel's story is pretty familiar, maybe even relatable. It could very well be the story of many of our youth and children in this church. Maybe it's your story. We may be surprised by the similarities, but we shouldn't be. The handing on of lived faith from one generation to the next turns out hasn't drastically changed over time. Actually, research shows that across varied religious traditions and regions, race and ethnicity, social class and family structure, gender identity and sexual orientation, faith transmission happens in almost mostly the same simple ways with young people seeing what faithful living looks like from the people who love them. And with our help, helping them develop faith practices and stories so that they're of their own, so that with time, they can claim faith as their own too. But of course, we know the larger story. We don't have to read the latest youth and religion research to know that many young people aren't holding on to the faith passed on to them, at least not in the ways that we can see and quantify. I imagine many of us have young people in our lives, children and godchildren, students and mentees, friends or neighbors who were raised up in the faith and who would now fall into the largest growing religious affiliation out there, none, no religious affiliation. How, why? Well, perhaps we might start by listening to our young people themselves. In her book, Almost Christian, Kinda Dean, a pastor, professor, and researcher in the National Study of Youth and Religion, draws from that study to interpret the faith of our, what the faith of our teenagers is telling us, the American church. The news is hard, but hopeful. The good news, first, is that young Americans are far from faithless. The vast majority, even in a place like Berkeley, have a positive view of religious faith. The bad news is that it just doesn't concern them much. And for many, it isn't durable enough to survive long after they graduate from high school. Turns out most American teens are fine with faith, even have a positive view of it, but just don't think about it very much. And when asked, 
They lack the theological language with which to express their faith and interpret their experience in the world. Their faith is, in short, what Christian Smith, the sociologist, calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. A hodgepodge of trite, feel-good beliefs about a God who functions as little more than benign butler who meets their needs when summoned, or hype man who helps them feel good about themselves. Whatever the case, this God and this faith that they are being passed down are far from engaged in youth's daily lives or in the world, and certainly not compelling enough to inform their search for identity, belonging, and purpose, or offer any meaningful resources as they navigate the crises of climate and mental health, social injustice, and economic disparity. It's a bleak picture, my friends. And perhaps bleaker still is this hard final claim. We're responsible. That's us. That's right, us, the American church. Because remember, if the faith formation of our youth is a reflection of their adult caregivers, well then we collectively have handed down to them an emaciated form of faith, a set of flimsy beliefs in an even flimsier God. But, and here is the good gospel news for us, Intending to the faith of our young people, they just may help us collectively revision and reclaim our own. If we read on in Samuel's story, we find that Samuel follows Eli's instructions. He listens for God's voice and receives a prophetic message, and it's for the current generation of chief priests. Their lackadaisical faith has made a joke of the living God. They are passing along empty religion, not faithful living before a living God. Friends, like Samuel, our youth are prophetic voices, calling us to authentic faith by their very presence and voices, or perhaps lack thereof in our sanctuaries. If we're willing to listen, to really listen, they may just help us revision their faith and our own. So how do we do it? How do we raise up our faith, raise up our youth in a faith that is consequential and meaningful? Well, the answer isn't all that complicated. We simply practice our own faith authentically for its own sake in the everyday stuff of life. In a word, we open up our eyes to the ministry of the ordinary here to share with us about her ministry of the ordinary, of parenting and caring for children, is Ashley Downen. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for joining us. It has been such a gift to hear different stories over these last few weeks of how people are doing ministry in just the ordinary places of life. Um, and as we think about kind of the ordinary uh, in our life, um, there is nothing much more ordinary than just the, the everyday task of being a caregiver for children and youth in our life. So could you start by maybe just telling us a little bit about you and your family? Sure. Um, so it's me and my husband, Nate. Um, we currently have four kids in our home. Um, two are biological and two are adopted from foster care. Um, our oldest is Lucy, who's 12. Jesse is nine. 
Milo is eight and Lily is seven. Um, and our family has taken a few different forms over the past few years. Um, we started fostering six years ago and we've had, other than our two adopted kids now, we've had three other kids who've moved in and moved out um, over various points. As you and Nate contemplated family and um, what that would look like for you, what led you on this journey of opening up your home and expanding your family in this way? Yeah, we kind of always had adoption on our radar, even before we got married. You know, we kind of talked about it in theory, maybe one day we would adopt and, um, you know, we got married and we en ended up having a surprise baby who was Lucy, um, which was wonderful. And um, we decided we wanted another child, um, Milo. Um, and we, uh, for both pregnancies, I was very, very sick um, throughout the whole pregnancy. So after both of them, you know, I said, okay, no more pregnancies. We're not, I'm, I'm not having any more biological children, um, but still kind of felt like we might want to add another sibling. And I was home part-time um, at the time and kind of looking for a way to um, give back to the community, kind of feel like I'm making a difference, but also still be able to, to have the time to stay home. So that's kind of how we got involved with foster care. And when we first started, it was really about, um, you know, we were really thinking about the kids in our community, you know, like there's kids in our community, how can we help and support um, kids who are going through a hard time in their life. Um, but over the years, it's kind of, my view has expanded more to uh, caring more about the whole family and seeing the birth parents, meeting them, getting to know their stories and kind of understanding, I think, I mean, really seeing how much they love their kids and how devastating this whole process is for them and how they themselves have been um, repeatedly harmed by society or in their own families um, and how, um, you know, fostering has become more of a chance to support the whole family um, over the years, not just the kids. What have you learned? Obviously, you've learned a lot through the fostering um, journey, but I'm curious, what are you learning through the children and the youth in your life today? Um, what are you hearing from God through them? Yeah, I mean, I think kids can be like the biggest magnifying glasses of where we ourselves need to grow. Um, and I definitely experienced that with my kids of, you know, I can think all the right things and know like, okay, when my kid has a tantrum, I'm going to be so patient and understanding. And, um, you know, I know that in my mind, but actually doing that is a different story. And so it kind of points out the areas that I need to grow and that God is still working in my own life. Um, so I think that's number one. Um, I think also um, forgiveness and grace that my kids, I mean, kids just are quick to forgive and quick to offer grace and love. Whereas, you know, my adult brain, I'm like, have this tally going of um, how people have harmed me and what they deserve and, um, you know, all of this. And kids just don't think that way for the most part of, you know, you say sorry to them and they forgive you and there's no tally. Um, and, you know, there's no withholding of love or, um, or any of that. Um, I think my kids have also taught me about resilience, um, and how 
healing as possible, but it often doesn't look the way that I think it's going to look. Um, so, you know, when we, when I look at my kids' lives or my own life, sometimes it's like day to day, it's like, oh man, I'm still struggling with the same thing. My kids are still struggling with the same thing. Um, but then when you look back over months or years, um, you know, I see, wow, how, how far they've come, how far I've come, um, the changes that have been made and, um, how the timeline for healing and growth is so much longer than I would like it to be, but it is still happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the biggest thing that my kids have taught me is just that, and especially as a foster parent of how much I need to rely on God as the source of love, um, and grace and patience and all the good things. Um, you know, because I run out of those things all the time, but God does not. What are the particular ways that you have felt that you have been sustained on this journey of being a caregiver to the youth that have been given into your care and responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I think community is huge. Um, you know, on the days that just feel really hard, it always turns the day around to see, you know, either another parent and their kids or um, even a friend who doesn't have kids and it just normalizes the experience that um, of parenting that can often feel so lonely and isolating. And when we're on our own, I think our minds can often go to the worst of like, I'm not doing enough, my kids aren't doing enough, whatever it is. But then in community, you have other voices telling you that, no, this is normal. This is a phase. Um, you know, maybe people who have been on the other side of it can look back and say, oh yeah, that's, that's a hard time, but it, it passes. And um, yeah. And I, I think also like oftentimes it takes an outside voice for me to see the growth in my own life and in my kids' lives. So, you know, for example, um, a friend or a family member who hasn't seen my kids for several months um, will say, oh, wow, like, look how different things are from three months ago. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we're still struggling with the same things. And they, you know, they'll have to remind me that, no, remember when you know, it was hard for, you know, your kids to sleep through the night even, or you were struggling with, you know, your kid writing their name and now look what's happened. And um, it often takes the outside people to point out, I think the areas of growth and healing that have occurred. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think the church can learn from, if it thinks of itself as the extended community of care um, for our, our children and youth? I mean, I think that there's, there's the micro level and the macro level and the micro level of, uh, I think relationships with people in the church of supporting caregivers and supporting children and, you know, making spaces where, you know, children are welcomed and, and um, cherished and there's multiple voices speaking life into them are super important. But I think also, I also think about the macro level um, of how we advocate for kids and how we advocate for a society that is sustainable and healthy for families, um, both just everyday families of, and also, um, you know, vulnerable families. And, um, you know, I think about how my kids have come to me and why, and the things that their parents have struggled with. And it's often because of structures in society that are unjust and, um, you know, they can't find the help that they need in order to parent. And that's why, you know, they end up in the situations that they're in. So I think it's kind of, yeah, a two-pronged thing of looking at 
the larger picture and also just who we're in contact with in our daily lives. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us and sharing a, a little bit about the ways that you are absolutely ministering in the day-to-day -day, um, ordinary, but never the same work of uh, a parenting of caregiving for um, the children and youth that God has placed in your life. Um, certainly a lot for us to sit with and so grateful for your time and sharing. Thank you. Friends, as we have sat with these last number of weeks, uh, the truth is that our faith formation is not tied up to a series of lessons or curriculum, uh, an occasion on a Sunday morning or away at camp. It is the everyday formation of our lives, the pattering of our lives around the grace of God that meets us in the everyday and that invites us to go out and extend that in community and in the world. It is an ongoing process, best done in community. And if you needed some encouragement today, I hope that you got that from our youth leading us in worship, um, not just up here, but leading us in being the church who sees God at work in the world and who invites us to go out and follow. We will see that shortly in an opportunity to serve but if you are in need of some encouragement, if you are committed to living into the faith formation of our young people, I invite you to come. Step in, in your own lives, but come and join us in godly play, in the teddy bear lair. Um, come love on some youth. There is formation happening um, every day, in your homes, in your conversations, in your text messages. Uh, and here in this church. We are together supporting one another in this work, and we are learning from our children and our youth what it means to be people of faith, to have it baked into our day-to-day -day living. So friends, let us continue in this extraordinary ministry of the ordinary in our own lives, for our own sake, as well as for the sake of our young people. And all God's people say, Amen.